Hi, this is John Stonge, and you're about to hear the recording of tonight's training call for the Healthy Discipleship Community. Tonight we ask the question, how can Christians avoid financial trouble? It's certainly a relevant subject for any era, but it seems like a particularly relevant subject right now, and so we talked about it tonight. If you'd like to learn more about the Healthy Discipleship Community and what it looks like to be part of it, I'd encourage you to stop by our website, HealthyDiscipleshipCommunity.com, and check it out. Now here's tonight's training. Well, good evening, and welcome to this evening's training session for the Healthy Discipleship Community. Tonight we're going to be talking about a subject that is quite relevant for just about any sphere of life that we're in, but it's certainly relevant uh, for uh, this particular season of history as well. And the topic tonight, we're talking about how can Christians avoid financial trouble? This is frequently a, a, an issue where many of us find ourselves dealing with a lot of problems. I mean, I can confess to you that there are times in my life that I have made poor financial decisions. There's also times in my life that I've made wise financial decisions. And the older that I get, I want to make more wise decisions in regard to my finances than I want to make unwise decisions. And so tonight we're talking about this idea of how can Christians avoid financial trouble. And I hope you'll find our discussion this evening very practical and encouraging. We're going to be looking at a variety of scriptures, and then we're going to be talking about some biblical principles related to those scriptures. Now, let me say this as we start off. Money is a very useful tool, but it's a terrible idol. And uh, please notice that, all right? The, the fact that for many people, the, they don't treat money like it's a tool. They treat it like it's an object of worship, but it's a terrible idol for many. The stewardship of money is something that has a major impact on the health of many families. And I'll also say it has a, an, an impact on the health of many ministries, Many ministries, many families are, are dramatically impacted by the way finances are stewardship, uh, are, or are stewarded, I should say, within them. And ironically, many Christians will tell you that they have received very little, if any, counsel or instruction on how to steward their finances. So in our small way, we're going to do our best to uh, maybe remedy that a little bit this evening. So a, a couple questions here, and these are just uh, not even questions for us to necessarily answer out loud yet, but just a few things that I want to uh, just have running through your mind even before we go to our discussion time in a little bit. But the first question is that I want you to be thinking about is this, what is your present philosophy of how to handle your personal finances? And uh, I'll be curious in a little bit to hear some answers to some of these, but what's your present philosophy? I mean, we all we all, whether we admit it or not, we all have a philosophy on finances and how they should be handled. And you could see what our philosophy is by what we choose to do or what we choose not to do. And a follow-up question to that is, will that philosophy be a long-term blessing or burden to your family and to your ministry? And by the way, whether you're in vocational ministry or not, I believe every Christian has a ministry. Every one of us has something that the Lord's equipped us to do, and, uh, and he certainly wants us to be involved in those things. And so will your financial philosophy be a long-term blessing or a burden to your family and to your ministry? How about this? Is your family going to live in constant fear of running out of money? 
Is that going to be a theme in the context of your home? And here's another question I like to ask, and I hope you'll take this to heart. This is the type of thing that, that I think is very important for any fully devoted follower of Christ to be thinking about. But will the lack of money or the presence of excessive debt prevent you from serving where the Lord is calling you? Uh, I'm sure many of you know that if you felt like the Lord was calling you to serve on the mission field and uh, and you were trying to be approved maybe with a mission agency. I've, I've uh, spoken to many recruiters and mission directors that have said that there are plenty of wonderfully qualified people that they have had to either pause working with or they were not able to bring on at a particular time because their debt load was so excessive and they needed them to spend time paying off that debt before they were able to commission them to serve in the areas that, that they were considering or, or interested in serving. And so it's a useful question for us to be asking, will the lack of money or the presence of excessive debt prevent you from serving where the Lord is calling you? Now, I want to take a moment to show us a group of scriptures related to finances, and I think people would be surprised to discover just how much the Bible brings up the subject of money. For how taboo the subject of money tends to be among many Christians, the Bible brings it up repeatedly in, in many, many instances, and I think it'd be useful to look at an overview of some of the things that Scripture tells us about money and about how we're to respond to money. And you'll see a theme here, this idea of money being a useful tool, but being a terrible object of worship, a terrible thing to idolize. First scripture I want to show us is from Ecclesiastes 5.10, and in that passage it says this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. So you have an Ecclesiastes here telling us that, look, if you love money, you're never going to be satisfied with it, meaning you're never going to come to a day where you say, you know what, I think I have enough. That's not going to happen for you if you love money. Effectively, it's saying, you know, if you worship money, you're never going to be satisfied with it because you could always have one dollar more. And again, there it says, nor he who loves his wealth with his income. If you love wealth, there's always one more dollar that can come in for your income. And, uh, and this is vanity to have that kind of mindset, to pursue money with that kind of heart, to try and worship money or love money. The writer of Ecclesiastes reminds us of that. Something else I think is useful, especially in the, the subject of debt, in the book of Romans chapter 13, verse 8, the Apostle Paul makes this statement. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, the greater point that Paul's making there in, in Romans 13, he talks a lot about government in that chapter as well, but it, he, he's trying to make a point here in verse 8 of Romans 13 to encourage believers to be very uh, generous in the love that they show to one another. And he uses this idea of that, that I think we could all relate to, this idea of debt, and, he's, and as he starts off this discussion or this reference to uh, this encouragement to love one another, he says, owe no one anything. Owe no one anything. So just keep that in mind because, and we'll talk about this in a few moments, uh, we live in a culture that owes 
everyone everything, it seems. It, it just seems to be the, the, the common pattern of our day, and it can be very unhealthy for a Christian to take on that kind of mindset or live with that kind of pattern. Hebrews 13.5 tells us something rather beneficial. It says this. It says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now that quote, as the Lord reveals that to his people, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that's referenced multiple times in Scripture. We see it here in the New Testament. We also see it in the Old Testament as the Lord was dealing with the people of Israel primarily. He says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And so the Scripture encourages us to keep our lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has promised us that that he's enough and he's not going to leave us. And so you can see this pattern developing here as we look at some of these select scriptures. Let's look at a couple more. Um, In 1 Timothy chapter 3, you have the Apostle Paul giving Timothy some instruction for those that are going to hold roles of influence and leadership in the church. And he, he, you know, gives these stipulations. He gives this metric by which leaders can be evaluated. And some of the things that the Apostle Paul says really needs to be true of church leaders, he says, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. So not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. These are in Paul's list of the things that need to be looked at when you're trying to assess whether or not somebody is qualified for church leadership. Because if you're involved in church leadership, you're going to have a high degree of influence on the people of God. And if you're a lover of money, that might rub off on the Lord's people, and you might inadvertently uh, encourage idolatry among the people that you're, you're called to lead. And that's certainly not a, a good thing. And if you're a lover of money, that, that means that you have an idol in your heart that, that really shouldn't be there. And uh, that can be a disqualifying factor for somebody that, that seeks to or aspires to be involved in church leadership. So again, we see this idea of don't love money. You can use money. You could be a good steward of money, but do not love it. Uh, one other scripture that I want to share with us before we start kind of picking apart these these ideas and looking at some of these principles. But in 1 Timothy chapter 6, so we're still in the book of 1 Timothy, like the scripture we just read, but 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul goes into greater detail about this. And he says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So again, he gives us the challenge here. Don't love money. Don't be somebody who spends your life just desiring to be rich. And that can be challenging for all of us, because I think many of us have have thought, you know, if I just had unlimited financial resources. I wouldn't have this problem or that problem. And so we really wrestle with that. And I think deep down for many of us, there kind of is a desire to be rich in the back of our minds. But Paul cautions us and says, listen, if that really is your, your deepest seated desire, 
understand that you're going to fall into temptation, into snares and senseless and harmful desires that can ruin and destroy you. And so there's a very, very strong word of caution here from the Apostle Paul as the Holy Spirit inspired him to, to write these things down. And, and Paul even says that, that it's through this craving, through this desire, that some have even wandered away from the faith and have hurt themselves needlessly by, by piercing themselves with many pangs, he says here. So that's something that's, again, another word of caution. But I think you can see that the theme of at least the select verses that we just looked at encourages us not to be lovers of money. And I bring those things up tonight because as we're talking about finances, I don't want to portray financial things as if they fall into a category of something we should love. I'm going to share some principles that I think are wise and helpful, but I don't want to convey uh, this idea that we're, we're to love money or that money is somehow going to solve all of our concerns and problems because that's far from the truth. But we can be wise stewards of our finances and we can avoid many of the financial mistakes that some of our brothers and sisters in Christ are presently making or have made in the past. Or maybe we could avoid remaking some of the mistakes that we personally have made in the past by following biblical principles. And so I'm going to share with us six things that I think, uh, you know, six major principles that I think are worth considering regarding the stewardship of our personal finances. Six things that I think uh, have biblical support and certainly fall in line with the idea of being a good steward of our finances. So let me, let me start off with this. I think one of the primary principles that we should keep in mind when it comes to our personal finances is that we should be generous with our giving. And uh, there are reasons for this, um, you know, w- w- one of which I think the Lord gives us the privilege Uh, to give so that we don't end up worshiping the gifts that he's given us. And so the Lord allows us to be generous with what he's entrusted to us so that we recognize that there's benefit in giving it away. There's benefit in sharing it so we don't worship it. So I have a few principles here under this idea of generous giving. First of all, you can either worship money or you can use it to worship God. Uh, Even when I'm presenting, so many of you know I pastor a local church here in my community, And when we speak about giving here in our context, I don't present giving in the church context as if we're trying to support a budget, because that's not what we're trying to do. When our people are being encouraged to be generous givers, we're doing so as an act of worship unto the Lord. We're saying, Lord, thank you for what you've blessed me with. I'm now going to use a portion of this to return it over to you so that it could be used to glorify your name and be part of the building of your kingdom. So we can either worship money or we can use it to worship God. And personally, one of the questions I get frequently relates to tithing. I don't know if those on the call tonight or those listening to this via the recording or the podcast uh, are already familiar with the concept of tithing. I suspect that most, if not many, uh, are. Uh, But tithing is this idea of taking the first 10% of what you earn and donating it to the work of the Lord. And uh, so some people ask me what my opinion about tithing is. Some people say, you know, that seems to be something more required during the Old Testament, and and maybe it's not quite as required for us living under the New Testament, but that's not how I see it. I look at tithing as a floor on my giving, not not the max, and and kind of, you know, even if if someone tries to tell me, yeah, that was more of an Old Testament regulation, I I think to myself, 
Well, living under the new covenant, I feel like I've been blessed in, in countless ways that far surpass many of the blessings that our brothers and sisters experience living under the old covenant. So if, that, if, if those living during that era didn't even have some of the blessings that I have, but yet they practice tithing. I think to myself, well, that's the least I want to do. I at least want to tithe, you know, and hopefully the Lord inspires generosity in my heart to give even beyond that. So our personal family pattern with this is we consider tithing to be a floor on our giving, not the max. We don't, we don't look at it and say, all right, I tithe, that's enough. We look at it as let's start with tithing, and then if the Lord allows us to or if he inspires us to be generous beyond that, we want to be generous beyond that. And that took me a while to understand. It took me a while to get to. But once I got there, it's kind of interesting because you adjust your life to it and uh, and you don't really notice it the same way as maybe you once would have. And uh, I have to say the Lord's blessed us far beyond what we deserve in all areas. And so, um, you know, we consider it a privilege and a joy to be generous with our giving. And by God's grace, we hope that that continues in our life. And I believe generosity has a huge impact on the culture of our household. I believe it has a huge impact on the culture of the church. I think that that is something that will have a huge impact on your household and your church as well. So I believe generosity is a biblical pattern, a biblical principle, and we can be generous understanding that the Lord delights to meet our needs. You know, even as we as we give and we're generous with what the Lord blesses us with, we want to recognize the Lord still desires to meet our needs. It's not like we're going to be generous in giving and then forget the fact that the Lord meets our needs. He continues to meet our needs, and he tells us multiple times in Scripture that that's something he delights to do. One other thing about generous giving that I'll make mention of here, I think it's beneficial to set a standard for generous giving as early as possible. So in your household, setting that standard, for yourself, setting that standard. As an example to your brothers and sisters in Christ in your local church, setting that standard. We want to set that standard for generous giving as early as possible and maybe even help our children understand that early so that that becomes a pattern throughout the course of of their lives. And that's something my wife and I have been striving to teach our children. We do believe that that's a concept that they have grasped, uh, particularly now as they're older. And some, you know, they're still our children, but two of them have moved into adulthood at this point. So uh, I'm grateful to see how they practice generosity at this season of their life. But this is something that the Lord desires that we do. Uh, a second principle that I, I believe is a, a biblical principle. We see this in, in Paul's words in Romans chapter 13, even though he just mentions it briefly. You see lots of details about this if you read through the book of Proverbs, by the way. But I think we as believers should be debt avoiding. Debt avoiding. Now, American culture, and I recognize many people listening to the podcast here and, and accessing this recording, don't live in American culture. I know some of you live in various places throughout the world. But I also know that American culture tends to be front and center as far as a lot of influence. And uh, our American culture, and this is not a compliment, our American culture is practically addicted to debt. We are addicted to it. Uh, we take on all kinds of debts. I remember at one point in my life, uh, adding up all my debts, and I could not believe how much I had taken on. Uh, at present, I, I am not comfortable with debt. So I do have one remaining debt. I've, I've paid all my other debts, whether it be credit cards or student loans or anything like that, automobile loans. I don't have any of that stuff anymore. I used to have it all. 
I don't have it now. I still owe a little bit on my house, but I'm almost done paying that off. And uh, Lord willing, it, at some point um, when that's paid off, it, it is in my heart not to ever take on debt ever again. And I believe it's wise for us as believers to be debt avoiding. Uh, ironically, pastors and churches have also become very comfortable with debt, and many churches get themselves in big trouble by taking on excessive amounts of debt and then finding that they can't pay it back. So what kind of debts are you currently burdened with? You know, those of you that are on the call tonight, those of you listening to the recording, car loans, student loans, credit card debt, other forms of debt, you know, personal loans, are, are these things that right now are weighing your heart and weighing your mind down? Um, you know, if you've got them, you know, finish up paying them. But I think it's wise not to take on any more once you get rid of them. Because think about the kind of difference it would make on your life, and even on the way you sleep at night, if you got rid of your debt and refused to take on any additional debt. It would have an impact on the quality of your life. So I'd encourage you to consider becoming debt-free and then avoid debt from that point on. It might take years for you to get to that spot of debt freedom. I mean, it took me years to, to pay off some of the debts that I had incurred, particularly with student debt and things along those lines. But I got to tell you, I slept better at night once I didn't have it. A third principle that I think is useful for us as believers to keep in mind is what I'm referring to as smart earning. And I'll explain what I mean by that. I think we need to be smart earners. So a question for consideration in the back of your mind right now is this. How many sources of income do you currently have? I think most people would answer that question with one. Most people have, if they have a source of income, they have one. And that's the most common thing. Although the tricky thing with that uh, is that it, it means that you're at a spot where you have a single source of failure. That if you lose that one source of income, if that gets interrupted, that puts you on shaky financial ground. And so I think it's wise to actually have more than one source of income when possible, if possible. And I have to say, if you think a little bit outside the box with some of these things, um, it, it actually is more possible than many people really realize. Uh, I actually saw a statistic a few years ago that talked about the, the sources of income and how many sources of income that, that many of, of those that we know that are financially well off how many sources of income they typically have. And on average, those that are financially well off tend to have not just one source of income, they tend to have about seven, according to the study. They tend to have seven sources of income. So they might own rental real estate. They might get royalties from something that they've written or recorded. Um, you know, they, they probably have a variety of forms of income. But a question that I think is useful for asking uh, or useful for us to ask in a context like this is how can we earn extra income without having to trade hours for dollars? Because there's only so many hours in a day and you're probably right now thinking, how could I earn more income? You know, I, I already have a full-time job and maybe some of you are working a more than full-time job. And you're thinking, how can I earn extra money? I don't have extra time. Well, the truth is there are additional ways to earn income without trading hours for dollars. And sometimes you want to look into things like intellectual property, again, rental real estate. Um, even if you do a Google, uh, Google search for sources of passive income, 
that can be a very practical thing. And I remember at one point doing a little research on that and explaining to my children when they were young that there are more ways to earn income than just from a job. And that didn't make sense to them when they were younger, but they, they understand it now. In fact, uh, just yesterday, I was looking at um, some stocks that I encouraged my sons to buy. They had some earnings that were kind of undesignated uh, from their jobs. They, they work, one works at a grocery store and one works at a fast food restaurant. And I, I want them to be good stewards of those finances. But I said, you know, it's not really earning you any interest sitting there in your checking account. Why don't you consider purchasing some stocks based on, you know, some stocks that tend to perform rather well? And so they both thought that was a wise idea. And uh, they bought some stocks. Interestingly, soon after they bought them, uh, the market had a real big correction. So they were below water on uh, what the, the, the stocks were worth a little less than what they had paid for them. But I encouraged them, I said, just wait it out because this is going to come back before you know it. And that's exactly what happened. And uh, they both looked at their portfolio yesterday and each of them had earned about $500 in interest on the stocks that they had purchased. And that was a way that they were earn some ex- able to earn some extra money without trading hours for dollars. And so if you just do a search, I, my goal tonight isn't to list out a whole bunch of ways to earn passive income, but there are a variety of ways that are healthy and I think biblical ways for believers to consider uh, earning forms of passive income that could be a real benefit to their family and to their, to their church ministry. So doing some smart earning, definitely look up passive income strategies. Uh, a fourth principle that I think is really critical, and that's this, lean living. So a few questions that I'll ask just to kind of set this up. Why is it wise to set and keep a budget regarding your expenditures? When you talk to many people, they'll tell you they don't really have a written budget. And because they don't have a written budget, they tend to live less lean than they really should. And as a result, they end up wasting funds because they're not budgeting where those dollars are supposed to go. And so they end up wasting money instead of holding on to the money. Um, and so, you know, a follow-up question to that is, how often do you review your expenses, your insurances, things of that nature? Last year, I, I looked at my homeowner's insurance and my car insurance, and actually, it was the year before, and I discovered that I could chop them in half if I switched to a different insurance company, but I could have the same coverage that I had. And so I looked at it, it saved me $800. And I know that in the scheme of life, $800 doesn't sound like a lot of money, but the way I phrased it to myself was, all right, I just took time, I spent a little time, less than an hour to review my insurances. And in doing that, it was essentially like I had given myself an $800 raise. So I would encourage you to review your expenses, see what you could cut out that you really don't need. That's kind of a waste of money. Uh, Review things like insurances and other expenses. And before you know it, you'll be surprised at how lean living can put a little bit extra back in your budget that you could use to be generous with, or you could use to pay off debt, or you could use to invest. But I want to ask another question related to lean living, and that's this. Are you ever using purchases to fill an emotional void? That's what gets people in trouble quite frequently. They try and fill emotional voids with spending. They try and and satisfy their emotional needs through purchasing. 
And, uh, you know, many of us have seen, and maybe this is us, you know, on the call tonight, maybe some of us could confess to times where we've purchased things that we've never used, maybe clothing or something else. It just sits in a closet. You never take the tags off of it because you never get around to reading it and then, or using it and reading it. Why I say that uh, using it, you know, I think that was like a slip because I'm guilty of, of uh, buying books that I never read. Uh, I buy more books than, uh, than I think I'll ever possibly be able to read. That's one of my areas where I have to ask myself, am I, am I using a purchase to fill an emotional void? So I think that accidental slip of, of the tongue uh, kind of showed you where I'm tempted to, at times to waste money. I always tell myself, oh, it's educational. It's not a waste of money. And guess what? Sometimes it's a total waste of money. But we can, at times, use purchases to fill an emotional void. I know somebody in my life who had a habit for many, many years and still kind of has this habit of buying new vehicles very frequently, sometimes one a year, trading in last year's car and buying a new one. And so I just asked him at one point, I said, do you ever notice a pattern in your life that, that maybe at times you're buying these cars and trading in the old one because you're feeling emotionally drained or stressed? I said, do you, do you see a pattern with that? And he said, you know what? I have to admit that's probably true. I think I do see that as a sometimes pattern. And so we want to be careful with that. We don't want to use purchases to try and fill an emotional void because that's something that can very easily get us tripped up. A fifth thing that I want us to consider tonight, and that's this, equity building. Now, what do I mean by equity building? Well, I'm talking about things related to real estate. Now, not everybody is going to own real estate, and it's not necessarily wise for everybody to own real estate, but for many people, and probably even for most people, it's usually wise to own some real estate, because if you own a home, it basically operates like a piggy bank. It operates like something that is, you know, you're, you're making your payment, it tends to grow in value, and it's holding on to that money for you in most contexts. People ask me questions like, is a mortgage a good or a bad idea? Well, presently, at least for, you know, I think for the next year, I'm still going to have a mortgage. So I do have a mortgage at present, uh, but I would encourage you that if you do take out a mortgage, that you stick with a 15-year fixed mortgage uh, versus uh, a 30-year fixed or adjustable rate. And by the way, I'm not a financial planner. I'm not a financial advisor. Do your own research. None of what I'm saying tonight should be constituted as professional financial advice. I'm basically just telling you what I practice and what I do and, I, and, and why I think certain things are wiser than others. But I know for us, when I refinanced our home to a 15-year mortgage as opposed to a 30-year mortgage, it just saved us so much money on interest and it's helped us to pay off our home much, much more aggressively. And I'll say this, if you put a down payment of 20% or more on a home, you'll avoid something called PMI or MIP. PMI stands for Private Mortgage Insurance. Uh, MIP is another way they sometimes phrase that, and that stands for a mortgage insurance premium. And that's just money that you have to spend every month that the bank gets the benefit of. You don't get the benefit of, but you're basically buying insurance for the bank that if you default on your home, that insurance will kick in and pay the bank back for you defaulting on your mortgage. Uh, so it's, it's wise. If you're going to take out a mortgage, you want a 15-year fixed rate, in my opinion. At least that's what I wanted. And uh, it, the nice thing is you're always paying more in principal than interest if you do that. And with a down payment of 
you can avoid PMI or MIP. But how about this? What kind of impact would having a paid-for property make on your finances and ministry opportunities? Are there things that you could say yes to that you could not say if you had to worry about just the cost of, of, uh, of paying for a, a home? You know, and so build equity in a home if you have one is, is what I think is wise. And, uh, and see about getting that paid off. It's usually one of the best things that you could do for your long-term financial health. One last thing is this, and that's wise investing. So sometimes people ask me questions like, should Christians plan for retirement or should they place their faith in government programs to care for them in their elderly years? Uh, now, there are all sorts of opinions on this, and I'll just give you my own opinion. I, you know, I, I know how old I am and I know how many years it is until I retire. And personally, I'm not, I'm not convinced that many of those government programs that presently exist are going to exist in their current form when it would be time for me to utilize them. So I am not spending my working years counting on any sort of government program to help me when I'm in my senior years. So I'm planning, I'm personally planning for retirement. I'm planning for a day when maybe I'm not physically able to continue pastoring and, and, and earning a living uh, through you know, that form of ministry. Uh, I'm planning for a day when I don't have you know, a regular source of income and uh, from a job, you know, so I'm trying to invest, I'm trying to save. So, you know, we have, I have a 401k that I'm utilizing. All that is just an investment envelope. It's just a a tax structure for how you could buy uh, stocks and different things. And and so you buy it in a a 401k. Sometimes you do that, you do that through an employer, or if you work for like a university, you might have something called a 403b. It's just retirement vehicles uh, that you could use like an envelope that, that basically shelters uh, your your retirement investings from investing from certain tax expenses. Uh, another thing you could do, and this is something if you're self-employed, well worth considering. Um, and I know that this stuff sounds confusing, but it's it's much less confusing than it's than it really sounds. But opening up something like a, a Roth IRA, that's something I also did. You could do that in addition to your 401k or 403b if you already have those through an employer. You just open up a Roth IRA. And, um, and you, you, you know, the funds that you put in there, they're taxed before you put them in. So they're just taxed as your income. And uh, you put those funds in there, you buy stocks or mutual funds or, or whatever investment you're going to have in that IRA, and then it grows tax-free. And then when you retire and you take the, those earnings out, um, you're not taxed on it at that point. It's tax-free growth in a Roth IRA. And you could put, right now, you could put about $6,000 in that per year and um, and enjoy the benefit of that growing tax-free. Um, here's a statement that I hope you'll keep in mind when we talk about wise investing. I read this once. I think I read it a different way. So my phrasing here is a little bit different from how I initially read it, but this is how I phrase it in my own mind. The wise buy investments while the unwise buy liabilities. What I mean by that is this, most people are unwise with their finances and they buy liabilities. They buy things that go down in value. They buy things that end up having no value. They buy things that take money out of their pocket. But those that are financially wise spend their money on investments. Again, I'll use my sons as an example. Uh, You know, I was explaining this to them at one point. I said, if you buy 
an investment with this these funds as opposed to you know just something silly that you might enjoy for a little bit but then not really find any benefit in it later in life so if you if you use these earnings to buy investments you'll end up having more financial means later on and the wise tend to buy things that go up in value the wise tend to buy something they can invest in that will grow financially while the unwise buy liabilities well one of the biggest liabilities that people spend their money on right now is would be like a, a vehicle or just forms of entertainment or just various consumer products uh, like electronics or whatever it may be that just go down in value. So the wise are buying investments. They're making their money grow while the unwise are buying liabilities that, you know, things that just take more money out of their pocket or things that once they buy it, then they have to pay a bunch of money to maintain it. I saw something uh, recently about the boxer Evander Holyfield. I don't know if you're familiar with Evander Holyfield. Probably many of us are. But at one point, he bought a very extravagant mansion and then ran out of money to take care of it. So you would say, isn't real estate an investment? Well, sometimes it's an investment if somebody else is paying rent or something on it. Uh, but you know, in that context, he bought this home that was beyond his means, and it took something like... Um, you know, over a million dollars a year to maintain that property. And he ran out of money to maintain that property. So it was a liability. It was taking money out of his pocket. And so I just kind of throw out there to you, how much should you budget each month to invest? I'd encourage you, if, if possible, particularly if you get out of debt, to consider taking 20% of what you earn and putting it toward an investment of some kind. So you're going to have to get rid of your debt to do that. You're going to have to live probably more lean than many people are willing to live. But if you're taking 20% of what you earn and you're using that to invest, you're buying mutual funds, you're investing it in something that has the potential to grow, you know, you're funding your Roth IRA or something along those lines, you're, you're putting money toward your retirement. Um, you know, if you do that with 20% of your income you're, and you do that over a long-term period of time, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at how much that grows. But sometimes when I throw out a percentage like that, that intimidates people because they think, how can I use 20% of my income uh, for investments? And part of the reason why they struggle to do that is because they have so many liabilities right now, or they have so much debt right now that they can't imagine having that kind of margin to be able to invest 20% of what they're bringing in and they may only have one source of income. And so you can see how these all build on, the, on each other. All these concepts tend to build on one another, but I think wise investing is, a, is something that, that Scripture would encourage us as believers to consider doing. And this is some ways, these are some ways that we could do that here in the modern era. Now, in just a moment, we're going to open up the microphones and we're going to discuss some of these things. And I have a few questions for us that I think will be useful for us just as discussion starters. So get yourself ready. I'm going to bring us back here on gallery view. I'm going to stop the screen share and bring everybody up on the screen. And uh, let's see who we have with us here tonight. Good to see you guys. Uh, I see some people joining us new for the first time. Jay, wonderful to see you. Thanks for joining us tonight. It's great to see. I, I usually see you just as a still picture, but now I actually get <laughs> yeah. to see you moving. And I don't think you and I have seen each other face to face in probably 15 years. It's so, probably my pride. Yeah, great to see, see you. I'm glad you're able to jump on tonight. And great to see everybody else. Desha, Carol, Andrea. Paul, Don, Delroy, Nathan, James, Andrea. Great to see everybody. Um, so let me start us off. Here's a starter question for us. 
And uh, feel free, whoever wants to be brave, to, to jump in on this one, for starters. But what would you say, what's the most stressful aspect of managing finances for you? We all probably have a little something here or there. What's the, what's the most stressful aspect of managing finances for you? Anyone want to take a bite at that one? I'd say making the wrong decision. Yeah, how so? Choosing a wrong investment. And having it tank, have you ever had that happen? Have you ever choose, chosen something and then watched it decline? I have watched it decline, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's torturous. I've done that too, where you think you're making a wise choice and then the market tells you otherwise. And you're like, well, there went that money. <laughs> <laughs> then you have the lovely pr- privilege of explaining that to your wife and, and uh, saying, hey, guess what I did with our finances? I lost them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How about somebody else? Anyone else want to take a bite at that? What's, what's the most stressful aspect of managing finances for you? Well, um, for about four or five years, uh, I was debt free and, um, just last fall, uh, I wanted to go on this, uh, trip with my my nieces and nephews uh, on ATV so sounds fun so now I bought an ATV and I have payments for it oh. and, <laughs> and some credit card debt mm-hmm. so it kind of went in the wrong direction yeah with all yeah, that you're off to a good start and then yeah. uh, that shiny yeah. ATV said james i need you to buy me <laughs> but uh i'm i'm I, i'm work i'm working on for i have a plan i'm gonna play the card off and then when i paid the card off i'm gonna pay down the loan so i don't have so, it anymore yeah get rid of that debt get you get you back to that that uh debt-free yeah. stage i mean i, I i'm i mean it's it's just it's like you said it's just not really not really wise but um, I'm with you I agree hundred yeah. percent I mean in, in in the past I've had you're talking about stress and in the past I've had like like about three credit cards at once and that's just that's just scary that's just insane if it if it makes you feel any better James I've made that same mistake. And, uh, and perpetuated that for a long time and, uh, took me, took me a, a while to, to shovel out of that. And I, I would suspect that we're not the only ones on the call tonight that have been down that road. I'm, I'm never going to do the, the multiple, uh, cards again. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't blame you. Now, now here's, here's a question for us. Um, why do you suppose so many Christians hesitate to talk about finances, even though Scripture very clearly brings up the subject of financial stewardship all throughout the Old Testament. And again, you see a lot of things in the book of Proverbs, but Proverbs isn't the only place, but Proverbs has a lot of it. Um, But then all throughout the New Testament, you have the Apostle Paul, you have the writer of Hebrews, you have uh, James speaking about it. You also have Jesus throughout the Gospels talking about financial stewardship. Why do you think 
So with how much Scripture really brings this subject up, why is this a hard subject for us as Christians to either want to talk about or, or to even, even bother to, to bring up? Anyone have an opinion on that? Why is this a hard thing for Christians to talk about? Yeah, go for it. I think it might have something to do with, you know, we, uh, the scripture that says you can't serve God and mammon. So I think a lot of times it gives you, people try to not deal with the money aspect or conversation or whatnot to, to kind of like feel like they're, you know, closer to God and, uh, you know, that money, money don't, money doesn't matter, but it, it certainly does. And uh, I, I just wanted to touch on that last question you have. And, and I, I have some, uh, I have a whole lot of experience with uh, doing money and finances like way the wrong way. <laughs> I used to say I was really great at creative financing, but I was really just that. Well, we won't get into that, but now that I really know what to do and how to do money, it's hard to get folks on board with doing things that isn't the regular way to do it. You know, like most people buy a buy a brand new car, and then as soon as they drive it off the lot, it gets older and, and less, more, less money. Now, I bought myself a, uh, a 2002 Jaguar. Okay. And I bought it four years ago and it was worth the least it's going to be worth. Mm -hmm. My car is actually worth like $3,000 more today than it was when I bought it four years ago. But it, it people were afraid of buying a car that's, you know, uh, 12 years old. Or the worst thing is now that I have a Jaguar, people think I have money. Whereas my Jaguar costs a lot less than my wife's Malibu. Right. Uh, so it's almost like when you take, steps towards and and and, and i have a, a church family that when when i first got involved in leadership they had a building and i i told them what we could do with that building and it could generate income and nobody could see it because nobody had done it and uh so trying to convince people to come on board with taking risks financially it's very very hard to do and, oh, yeah. uh, and it also, it, it kind of creates like sometimes a division because people like don't, you know, uh, if you do it and then they didn't get involved, now they got a resentment because now you're, you know, when the profit's coming in, you know, they wish they would have. And I, I don't know, there's a whole lot of things involved in it, but I liked what you said. Most people buy stuff that just keeps being worth less and less. And you can buy the same things that appreciate in value and and uh and in real estate is one of those things i'm in a thing now where i had paid off a building now god made our our area here go way up in property value so i established a home line home equity line of credit on a property that i owned and i've been buying property with that home equity line of credit now most people the normal way you would have did something like that is sold that house and then used the money to buy something else. I still have the house. I'm using the money from the house through a home equity line of credit to buy other houses. And my wife is just like, she's real worried about it all the time. I try to tell her that, you know, worrying's a sin. We don't need to worry. But uh, finances, I think, worries so, me. 
Oh yeah. It's like, Hey, I'm, I'm stressing you out, but worrying's a sin. So don't, don't stress. That's right. <laughs> don't worry about it. We got it. Um, I, I just had a thought about all this. Yeah, go for it. And I, I, I'm and the way I put it is instant gratification mm-hmm. is an emotional addiction. Yeah, I think you're right. James, you should be a philosopher. <laughs> Desha, I saw your hand. Go for it. Yeah, I had a couple of thoughts on why people have such a hard time when it comes to money, when Christians do. Yeah, let's hear it. I think uh, a lot of it comes from lack of understanding what the Bible actually says mm-hmm. about it. I also think that it's so personal for some people and a lot of people struggle with it. And it's embarrassing maybe for embarrassing, us, and right? Maybe they don't have the budget. Yep in place that they can look at their finances so they don't even know so they can't discuss it or give or don't want to right um and i think also the emphasis that's put on money in the world and that coincides with it being so personal you know we're called to be opposite of the world Mm -hmm. and it just seems like that's one of the harder things because of the emphasis and how much we actually need and rely on money but yet there's the reliance on God through it too. So I don't know where that line is and it's going to be different for some, but maybe that line is what makes the difference in how people view money. Yeah. And unfortunately in our culture, too much of our self-worth is wrapped up in whatever our budget is, which is ridiculous because you don't get to take any of this with you. (laughs) And our worth in the eyes of God has nothing to do with our bank account. (laughs) Right. Well, and then the other thing, when it comes to tithing, there's such a negative connotation in the world. All the church wants is money. You know, yeah. and if it's a good, if it's a church of putting it to good use, I don't have right. a problem, you know, personally, I don't have a problem with that. Right. Um, if I don't know where my money's going, then I'm not probably going and to. that's different. It. Yeah. Yeah. They're but transparent with it or something. In the yeah. world that's put so much on the negativity with money yeah. in church. It's just insane. And even Christians, I think, still carry that with them if they don't understand yep. what the Bible actually says. I remember even my mom saying something like, once about it and i said well you know they have about him, the pastor preaching on it and i said uh-huh. well they kind of have to it's a hard it's hard for them to do it they don't uh, want to most yeah. times but they have to it's the bible you know well it's in so there like, if you're not going to bring it up you're gonna you're going to uh skip important things right you right, know i mean right. you got to preach the whole council and, and that's how people learn yeah about what it really means what money i remember my right. aunt posting something oh money is the root of all of evil and i actually wrote under it actually it's not it's the love of money right so exactly. it's like people say well, money is the root of all evil all the time, but it's not. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. The love of money, the the love of, of money worshiping the love of money, it, the idolizing love of worry, it. The love of alcohol, the love of relation. You know, you could yeah. substitute so many things in there, but that the Bible specifically mentions money for a reason in yeah. that regard. Absolutely. Yeah, here's a, here, you kind of made me uh, think of this too here uh, as you're saying this and you know, like the discussions you had earlier in life with, with some family members, anyone here wish you had some good financial coaching in your early years, like someone to really walk you through stuff. Any, anyone feel that way? Most people don't have that. And I think part of the reason they, they, you know, we don't have that is because it's, you know, such a taboo subject for many people. And, you know, where we as believers could be talking with each other about good biblical principles for good stewardship, but because it's such a a touchy subject, um, we just avoid the topic. And as a result, we make the same mistakes the world is making with their finances, because we're trying to do the same things they're doing. And one of the big things, and we talked about this a few moments ago, one of the big things that people are trying to do with financial purchases 
is they're trying to satisfy an emotional void. They're trying to satisfy something in their heart that only Christ can satisfy. There's a void in our hearts that only Christ can satisfy. And if we're trying to use anything else to satisfy that void, we're kidding ourselves. And so I'd be curious if anyone would want to comment about that specifically. What lessons have you learned personally about using your spending to fill emotional voids? Have you ever experienced that? And is there anything that the Lord's been teaching you about that, about you know trying to be more careful not to spend in order to fill an emotional void? Anyone want to speak to that? Go for it, Nathan. Um, all right. So <clears throat> I don't have any money to spend anymore. Okay. So that's not really that solves issue. a lot. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. Um, but yeah, in, in the past I did. Um, I try in general not to really use anything to fill an emotional void because it just, it, it rolls over. And a lot of the times where I've noticed, um, whatever it was, whether that's like trying to fit in or overeating or overspending or mm-hmm. really anything, um, the root cause is the same and it it feels the same in the end. So I try not to, but um, financially in particular, I've wasted a lot of money based on things that I figured would help me feel better in the moment. Right. And you know, maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but uh, it's in the long term very wasteful. And looking back, I'm like, I would have 1600 more dollars right now. I maybe didn't do that. Which it's you know it's a lot at my age, um, right? I'm like you know, I I could I could be so much better with my finances now, and I could have more to manage um, if I just well, didn't do that. But, hey, you know. you know what? You draw a line with the past. The past is the past, and you know here it is. Yeah, We're moving forward, and, and you know, and it's probably worth asking the question. You know, going forward, I mean, does it seem reasonably possible to those of us on the call? And maybe you could put your hands up and let me know if you agree or disagree with this. Um, But theoretically, does it not seem possible to live off of at some point with some preparation, 70% of what you earn so that you could invest 20% and, and donate 10%? Does that not seem theoretically possible at some point with some pre-planning? You know, if we could clear up debt or maybe even, you know, add an additional source of income. Does that seem so crazy, the idea of living on 70% of what we earn so that we can invest 20% and, uh, and tithe 10%? Does it seem possible to people? What do you think? I still, I think it's very possible. Yeah. Because... Um, I also, I mean, despite when I wasted it, that was really, um, don't beat yourself up too much. We've all done it. I won't. Okay? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Every um, one of us has done that at some point, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, a lot of it was birthday money anyway from like eight years. So well, there you go. Work too hard. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, um, I, oh, right. So we didn't always have a lot of money. So right. my mentality, you know, cause you know, my family's, doing pretty well right now but i still there's sometimes where i need clothes or whatever and i'll see like oh that shirt's 25 bucks that's kind of expensive and my mom's like you don't have to worry about that mm-hmm. um but i'm still in my head i'm very conservative with my money mm-hmm. um now at least and i feel like that's good because i don't i don't really spend um 
for things that I don't need anymore. The only things that, that I do spend money on are saving things that I feel like are going to be a good investment for myself or occasionally um, time. I'll, I'll spend money on other people to uh, be able to spend time with them. Or experiences or things that you're doing. Things yeah, like things yeah. like that. And, and my dad does, um, he sells mortgages. So like okay. financial things are kind of, Tell them to help Every, people get 15-year fixed mortgages. We, we want yeah. them to succeed. <laughs> I, I still don't understand what all of it means, but I heard a lot of terms that I've That's right. Yeah, stick with the 15-year. <laughs> yeah. Let me, let me ask our, our group, because uh, we're getting close to the end here. I'll, I have one more question I want to throw out there for us, and that's this. Do you truly believe that God is faithful to meet your needs? Why or why not? Do you truly believe that God is faithful to meet your needs. What do you think? Yeah, someone chime in. Just unmute that mic and just chime in. Testify to the fact that God meets our needs. Anyone want to make a comment about that? Okay. God has, met my, God has met my needs in so many ways. Mm-hmm. My husband was killed in an automobile accident at the age of 51. Mm-hmm. But he didn't believe in insurance because it was a ripoff. And I had two children in school. I had one 12 and one 16. Mm. And I was a stay-at-home mom. So, man, what was I going to do? I never did so much praying in all my life. And it took Mm. me four years. But God opened the door for me for this job. That People said, how did you get that job? How did you get that job? Not only that, I had worked for the state for 15 years before I had my children. We were late bloomers. But anyway... (laughs) I was out of work 21 years and I went back to work for the state. I got a job through the state. I was able to go back to the state. Nobody believed it. They reinstated all my years, the 15 years that I worked originally, so that by the time I was 66, I could go out on a pension. Wow. And I have a lifetime pension with full insurance, like, you know, health insurance. And God met my needs because I didn't know which way to turn. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know how I was going to raise these children. And then, John, you know, my other situation with my grandchildren, Mm -hmm. I had another set of family to raise. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, I'm never going to get through this. So everybody's, <laughs> but God did get me through it. But, you know, everybody's situation's different. I mean, you know, some families I know in our church, I've had people say to me, well, you can do this and you can do that. Mm-hmm. Well, if you have two incomes coming in and you have two pensions coming in, yeah, it's easy. Right. But when you have one income coming in and you're yeah. raising a family and keeping a house going, absolutely, you're struggling some days. But God has more than met my needs. Met your needs. That's a great testimony, I, I, Carol. I, I've known you a while, and I didn't know those details. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's 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 wonderful. I'm, thanks for sharing that with us. But he he didn't believe in insurance, and you know, jokingly, he said to me, "I said, you know." Did God put that in my mind? I don't know. I said, you know, we should really get more insurance. He had $5,000 Okay. with kids. I said, you know, we really should get more insurance. And he said, oh, you can always get a job. Joking. That was his, <laughs> you know, well, that's what happened. I did get a job. Well, God provided. God provided. God yeah. provided. He really did. Oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Anyone else? Do you truly believe that God will meet your needs? What do you think? Anyone else have a comment about that before we wind down? 
I would just uh, agree with her of Carol and just say that the power of prayer is amazing. And it sure is. There's many stories, you know, that, that we've heard of different people where they pray for things and God provides. And, you know, that, that's a, it's taught a lot in the Bible as well. And there's stories in there as well. But I mean, even since then, um, you just look back through different biographies that people have written and how through prayer, you know, there was nothing, you know, at the orphanage and they prayed and food showed up and, you know, different stories like that. Yeah. Yeah. The Lord meets it. It's funny. Like we, sometimes we think that we have to get this all figured out for God. Mm-hmm. And he, and he reminds us time and time again, like you said there, Jay, you know, he's, we're his children. You know, he, he's looking after us. He meets our needs in miraculous ways. And he, he, you know, he's, he's not, um, it, I don't think it bothers the Lord one bit to stretch our faith. You know, he's happy to stretch our faith so that our faith grows. You know, we learn to trust him in the midst of the, the process, but, um, but yeah, he meets those needs. And I, I, I'm sure we all have a testimony one way or another where we could testify to that. Well, this was great tonight. Really good conversation from everybody tonight. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see a, a full house here on my screen. Any uh, final comments or thoughts before we wind down? I was just going to say that um, when the Israel, uh, Israelites were in the desert and they were thirsty, God gave them water for 40 years. And when they were hungry, he gave them quail uh, and manna from heaven for 40 years. And when Peter said, you know, how, how do we manage uh, to uh, provide for the taxes? And God, uh, Jesus said, catch a fish. Yeah, there'll be a a gold coin there that'll pay yours and mine. God always provides. He always provides. Great examples from Scripture. Absolutely. Well, thanks everybody so much for being part of our call tonight. Really, I I always look forward to this uh, this time together on Thursday evening. So great to have you on here, and uh, and those of you that that are our regulars, glad you're able to be on here. And Jay, welcome tonight. Thanks for thanks for joining us all the way from. Thank you for having these, John. Oh, yeah, we, we love it. It's a lot of fun. We love it. And, uh, Jay, you're out in Missouri, right? Uh, Illinois, but actually right now I'm in Georgia. You're in Georgia? Okay, you're hopping around. Okay, all right. Uh, well, regardless, I know you're in a spot that I'm not. So, <laughs> so, but anyway, great to see you. And wonderful to see everybody else as well tonight. So have a wonderful evening, everybody. We'll catch you next time. All right, good night, Bye. everybody. Hey everybody, I'm Dale. And I'm Tamara. We're hosts of the Kainos Project podcast. Where we help you tackle ancient Christian truths in everyday settings. To learn more and subscribe, go to lifeaudio.com.